I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Being with dying was not something that I was necessarily attracted to. Many years ago, I got a PhD in mathematics. And I got this degree from Stanford University back in the late 60s, early 1970s, at which time the consciousness explosion was exploding. Uh, and at that time, Ramdas, who at that point was Richard Alpert, was traveling around the country talking about God and being Ramdas. When he would come to Northern California, he'd stay across the street from where I lived in Palo, in Palo Alto. So he and I got to be friends. And after I got my PhD, he invited me to come to India where I met Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, his guru, my guru. When I came back to America, I really decided that I didn't want to be a scientist anymore, that that had not been fulfilling a very deep need in my heart and my soul, that it was clear needed to be filled. So I became the executive director of Ramdas's umbrella nonprofit service-oriented corporation called the Hanuman Foundation. And at some point, Ramdas taught a workshop on the East Coast at with which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came as a student and at which Stephen Levine uh, 
was the Buddhist meditation teacher. Stephen and Elizabeth really hit it off. She invited him to become the Buddhist meditation teacher at her dying retreats. So we're not talking about conscious dying yet. We're just talking about dying. This was when nobody talked about dying. People said, no, that's too scary. We don't want to talk about that. And Elizabeth, Dr. Ross, was the first person to really bring dying out of the closet, so to speak, and make it a topic of a larger conversation. So she and Stephen worked together for a while, and eventually she got more involved in a kind of a violent psychodrama, war on negativity relationship with dying, which didn't dovetail too well with Stephen's Buddhist meditation. So he and Elizabeth parted ways very amicably. Stephen started teaching on his own, and he invited me to be the Buddhist meditation teacher at his dying retreats. And at that point, Ramdas also joined us. And that was really the beginning of the conscious dying movement in America. Ramdas had known this guy, Aldous Huxley, who you may have heard of, who wrote a novel called Island, at which he talked about having a center to come and die consciously. Ramdas thought this was a great idea, and he went around the country talking about it for years, but society wasn't ready to really deal with that. Anyway, we started talking about these things, teaching workshops, lectures, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and eventually thought it would be a great idea to actually have a place where people could come to die consciously. And the three of us decided to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico. At that point, Stephen got married and decided he'd rather live with his wife, who had actually come to retreat as a person who was potentially dying. And Ramdas was fantastic at initiating things and not so good at follow through. He kind of went off in, into his life and I was left after having uprooted and come to Santa Fe with nothing to do. So I said, well, why don't I start this Center for Conscious Dying? And I did. From 1981 to 1984 in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I directed a facility called the Dying Center, a very direct Zen-like name. And during those three and a half years, we had about 86 or 87 people come. It was the first time anybody had done that in the Western world. Everybody who worked there said it was the most difficult and most rewarding thing they had ever done because we were living in a house where somebody in the next bedroom was dying almost all of the time. And that, that, that person would die and then somebody else would move in. So it was very intense. And yet, you might ask, why was I doing this? I, I was doing it because, not because I'm interested in dying per se, or because I'm some saintly person, Mother Teresa in drag or something like that, but because I want to awaken. And one of my first meditation teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, said that until one comes into intimate contact with death, one's spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. My very deep feeling is that the best spiritual practice for this rather strange time in human history is some outer relationship, some intimate relationship with the dying process and an inner contemplative practice. I know people that have a deep inner contemplative practice they meditate till their knees are almost falling off. But if you really don't know you're dying, then your contemplative practice can have the, the effect of 
creating a more functioning personality structure, ego structure. You can become kinder, this and that. But until you really know you're dying, the deeper fruits that are potential in spiritual practice are not going to be available. At the same time, there are many people who are working on a day-to-day -day basis with death, doctors, nurses, hospice workers. But if you don't have that contemplative piece, the message that dying brings will not necessarily be heard. So that in, in Tibetan Buddhism, before one begins to practice, there are, are these four contemplations, the four mind-turning truths, truths that turn your mind towards awakening, towards the Dharma. And the first one is you're going to die, but you don't know when. You're going to die, but you don't know when. I'm going to die, but I don't know when. What could be more intellectually obvious? But if we really, really knew that, could you and I and you and all these other people, if we really knew that, how would it change this conversation we're ha having right now? If, if you didn't know that we would ever see each other, or even beyond that, that I'd be alive at the end of this interview, how would it change the way words are coming out of me into the microphone. Yes, we know we're going to die, but we don't know when. But can we bring that into the moment so that each breath, each word is completely fresh and alive and our passion is there? So that's why I want to be around dying. I want to be awakened that way. And strangely, or maybe not so strangely, the most beautiful Americans, Westerners I've ever met, with very few exceptions, are people who are almost dead because they're not busy being male, female, older, younger, sick, well, rich, poor. What's left? What's being essentialized when your abilities, your identities, your stuff, your friends, all those things are dropping away? What is it that's left? What is it that's left right? Certainly, the more I'm with dying, the more it's unavoidable that I'm going to die and I don't know when so that that's very awakening. There's still an attraction to running away. Everybody's addicted until you're completely free. Whether you're, even if you're not addicted to drugs or alcohol or bad relationships, I'm addicted to understanding. I'm addicted to excitement. And I use my mind, I use my ways, many ways of being in my body again and again of avoiding that, that moment to moment recollection that I'm going to die. And yet, as this work goes on, it becomes increasingly uncomfortable to do that. There's something saying, Dale, are you really doing that again? I mean, that sense of aliveness, that sense of you and I just being here talking is so much more appealing and so much more intimate and alive than any ways I could find to distract myself. So that, what is conscious dying? Now, right now, there's this, this notion that mindfulness is really the big hot topic. If we were to ask everybody listening to this video, what is conscious dying? Probably a lot of people would say it's really being mindful, being present. But I think it's a lot more than that. One can be mindful and not like what you're being mindful of. So to me, there are different layers or stages of what conscious living is and consequently what conscious dying is. And the good news is that there's not a lot of extra information one needs to learn to die consciously because it's about conscious living. 
The longer I do this work, it's not about dying, it's about healing. Everybody wants to be whole. And maybe the last few hours or few days of somebody's life, there are special practices that can be done that are specifically about dying. But to me, the main message from dying is that can that inspire us to want to be more awake as we're living? The first stage of conscious dying is, and conscious living is, yes, becoming more mindful. But then, can we bring compassion with passion? Can we not only be aware of what's going on, but can we have this deeply heartfelt, intimate, spacious relationship with what it is that's going on? There are certain defining qualities of the open heart. One of them is a spacious heart, which means there's not a lot of I, me, and mine running around inside. As the heart becomes more spacious, it becomes revealed that who we are is that sacredness or divinity that we were invoking in the very beginning of practice. That I am Chinrezi, I am Buddha nature, I am the mother, I am self with a capital S. And then eventually the final stage of conscious living, conscious dying, is non-duality. What Eckhart Tolle, Ramana Maharshi, Adyashanti, so many people are talking about these days, that from that stage, there's nobody to die. So that in each moment, it's just consciousness meeting experience, or even consciousness is experience. That there's not a separation between consciousness and content of consciousness. There can't be content without consciousness. There can't be consciousness without content. And whether the content is living or dying or cancer or not cancer, it's just consciousness being experience, if you will, moment to moment. Certainly, if there was somebody in the room right now who were actively dying, somebody whose breathing was very ragged, it was clear they were dying, their skin was very gray, their breath was really shallow, for many people it's hard to go beyond there's a dying person or there's a cancer patient. We project, we look at the identity. If Donald Trump came into the room right now, probably it would be difficult to see a human being. People would see whatever Donald Trump represented to them as president or good president or bad president, whatever your political leanings might happen to be. But in a way, even a stronger identity than Donald Trump is the identity of being a dying person. Is it possible then that we we can not project our fear of dying, that we can be with in a moment-to-moment way how that fear arises and meet that fear with awareness, meet it with compassion, that sense of empowerment, and finally, it's only, it's only consciousness. When I'm w- working with people who are dying, I don't say this to them, but I remember in the back of my mind that suffering is only suffering, and that cancer doesn't cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Dying doesn't cause suffering. It's resistance that to dying that causes suffering. And if one really does want to be awake, then any place that resistance is arising is this invitation that here's a place where the heart can open more deeply. Here's a place that can be more deeply healed. And there can even be gratitude for those places where we find the resistance. In hospice, the client is formally the whole family structure. If you're just trying to support the person who's actively ill or possibly dying, and you're not working with the children or the spouse or the parent, 
one can see without too much imagination, I think, that uh, you're not really dealing necessarily with the whole core of the situation. Certainly there are times in which there's only this one person that does want support, but very often, in fact, often the person who's dying might be having an easier time than their family members because they have the organic disease in their bodies so that there's some intuitive or somatic sense that they're being pulled into death, whereas the people who aren't sick are saying, oh, don't leave us, please, please. And they're having a lot more resistance at times. So, so compassion is love in the context where there is pain, suffering. And compassion is not a one-directional event. It's not like you're dying and there's your wife, so I'm shooting compassion towards you. It's no, I am feeling compassion in response to what's going on, and I have compassion for you, but compassion is also spreading to the spouse. And maybe most importantly, compassion includes myself. Because in all these wonderful Eastern practices that so many of us are engaged in, it's assumed that the practitioner is pretty well put together and that we're practicing compassion for the suffering other person. These practices were developed by and for Asian people 1,500, 2,000 years ago who didn't have an iPhone. They loved their mother and their father. They were walking around barefoot. They were grounded and centered and embodied. So it was assumed that you had this foundation from which to begin this project of disidentifying with character structure, that which is separate, that which is going to die, and beginning to identify with true nature, that which is not going to die. But if you begin this process of disidentification, of transformation, transmuting suffering, from the standpoint of being ungrounded, uncentered, neurotic, then it doesn't take too much imagination to see that not too far down the road it's going to get really complicated. I remember once I was at a Tibetan Buddhist empowerment, and as we were beginning, the Lama said, okay, everybody needs to open your heart, so think about your mother. And then he said, oh, I forgot, this is America. Think about your mother doesn't mean you're going to be happy. <laughs> and I mean, in a way, it's kind of a funny story, but what could be more sad? I mean, where he comes from, think about your mother opens your heart. And he remembered that where we're coming from, thinking about your mother, does not necessarily open your heart. In my work with dying people, or also as a meditation teacher, very often what's needed is not this really advanced, dissolving into spaciousness, non-duality, but encouraging people to start at the very beginning, getting into their body, being grounded, working with uh, fear and anxiety, working with guilt and shame, becoming centered, living the martial art of your life, if you will. And then, if those stages are worked with to a certain extent, yes, then we can start dissolving and letting go and surrendering and, and dying into love. And So, I used to work with Stephen Levine, as I mentioned before, and I've been working with dying people for 40 years. It's only very occasionally that I find a client who doesn't have major psychological, emotional issues that stand sort of between them and conscious dying. 
and die in the way that Stephen Levine's books might suggest. Here is a good dying. You know, so you pick up a Stephen Levine book and you read that chapter and then you say, okay, I'm going to do that. It's not that easy. <laughs> Any place where you're still afraid is going to be there at the, the bedside when you're dying. Any place where you're still arrogant or narcissistic or ashamed is, is going to be there. I tell people that when you are dying, Donald Trump is going to be at your bedside which completely freaks people out, right? <laughs> he's not going to be there, obviously, but any place that you are thinking he's super fantastic or super bad or whatever your thing is, that place in your being, as long as that's unconscious, that is still going to be there. When you are dying, you might be in a car with the person you love the most in the world, and he or she is screaming in terror. When you are dying, you might be lying on the floor of some supermarket and strangers are ripping your shirt off and pounding on your chest. Or when you're dying, there might be so much, so many opiates in your bloodstream that you can barely focus your mind at all. It would be great if we had the luxury of knowing when we're dying, there's going to be meditators surrounding the bedside and the angels are playing their harps and all those things are happening. Might not happen. Right now, in this simple moment of making a video or viewing a video or whatever's going on, this is that preparation for dying. The fantastic moments, the mundane moments, the difficult moments, and in a way the mundane moments, the neutral moments, are the hardest ones. Because the difficult ones have something intrinsically within them that inspire us to want to be more awake because you don't want to suffer so much. But when it's just like another moment, you're just walking down the street or you're just listening to somebody talking, talking, how alive are you willing to be then? Any ways that we prepare to be more consciously alive will help us die more consciously. Meditation is one of the ways to do that. I think meditation is a little bit tricky because people have these notions of, I should meditate more, or that was a good meditation, that was a bad meditation. Even me saying I'm a meditation teacher, I think is a little bit dubious. That meditation is really just life with your eyes shut and your mouth closed and your butt on the cushion or on the chair or whatever. So that some teachers say that the most important part of meditation is right after the ending bell, uh, the post-meditation period. So that, yeah, you can be kind of calm when you're sitting still and your eyes are closed, but then you get up and people say things to you or that somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever uh, difficult experiences might arise, can you integrate that into your life? What insights arise during practice? Somebody asked one of my teachers, how can you tell if meditation practice is really working? He says, are you becoming kinder to other people? I think that's a pretty good barometer, if you will. Another of my teachers, somebody asked him, what is meditation about? And he said, meditation is about finding the most important thing. And they said, well, what is the most important thing? And he said, finding the most important thing is the most important thing. <laughs> so what is the most important thing for you? What is the most important thing? That's why I choose to be around dying people, because when I'm sitting right next to somebody who's dying, it calls out the best in me. It reminds me that I don't want to be thinking about the giant's third base problem or whatever it is. I, want to, I really want to be with that human being. 
because I might never see her again. I might, uh, she might be dead, I might be dead before the next time we have arranged to get together. Just Sometimes I crawl in bed with them. <laughs> it's as individual as people are. Some people want meditation instructions. Some people want to talk about fear of death. Some people, suffering arises. There are three possible responses. One is pushing it away. I don't want to feel that. I'll give you an example. My brother David, my younger brother, died of metastatic pancreatic cancer uh, two and a half years ago on Halloween. And he was informed of his terminal prognosis by his oncologist in an after-hours email. The doctor sent him an email at 7 p.m. saying, you're dying of pancreatic cancer, we're putting you on palliative care. Now, it's easy to have compassion for my brother, semblance of compassion. Can we have compassion for the doctor who has no training in working with that kind of suffering? He is training in oncology and chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and different things. And all of a sudden, he has to tell this guy who has a couple of relatively young children that he's dying. That's hard for him. So suffering arises. First possibility is you push it away. Second possibility is you get lost in the suffering. Oh my God, what a catastrophe. Your suffering is my suffering, the codependent family member. So if you were really suffering, and either of those two people showed up at your bedside, somebody who's saying, it's going to be okay, don't worry about it, or oh my God, oh my God, could either of those two people really help you? And the answer is, fortunately, there's a third possibility, which is compassion. Not pushing suffering away, not getting lost in it, but being able to be open to, in relationship with compassion. It's not even compassion for the suffering person. It's compassion with the suffering person. You're willing to feel what they're feeling. It's a spacious heart. It's a warm heart. It's, it's a connected heart. So that even suggests the practice. that You're going through your life. Maybe today, Monday, you're saying, I'm going to really be aware of, is my heart warm? Or when I think about politics, or I think about money, or I think about various things, does my heart get cold? Or maybe it's a, is a connected heart. Can I feel connected to self, to other, to the sacred? What is it that disconnects me? What, what events in my life, what patterns in my character structure are separating me from being connected and awake and compassionate? Or a spacious heart, which is the one I like. My heart is as spacious as the sky. There's room in my heart not just for my suffering and your suffering, but all the suffering in the universe. It's boundless. But then I see somebody whose their particular brand of suffering bothers me. And my heart contracts around it and doesn't know that it can really stay open to that. Can I notice that? Can I be grateful for that? I've been talking about trust in my, the groups I facilitate the last few weeks. And somebody sent me a link with a YouTube video by this person, Brene Brown. She had a very interesting statistic. She said that she had 11,000 data points, which I assume are people, that she had interviewed over 12 years. And all these 11,000 people, there's not one person that had a joyful life that did not have one regular practice in their life. And it's not meditation, it's the practice of gratitude. That one cannot have a joyful life if you're not grateful. Maybe you have brain tumors, can you still be grateful? Maybe your spouse is dying. Maybe your child is sick. 
And yes, it can be very, very sad. But can there be a joyfulness, a gratitude that transcends happiness and sadness, wellness and illness? This whole notion of conscious dying is very intimately connected with grief. Rumi has this wonderful quote, grief is the garden of compassion. So a garden is a place where something beautiful or wonderful or tasty grows. And he's saying that, that compassion grows in this garden of grief. Grief has the quality of separateness. Grief are negative emotions that we're caught in that arise because we're feeling separate. Anger, sadness. Stereotypically, we think of grief as, I'm feeling really sad because a relationship ended, somebody died. But somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get angry. That's a grief reaction. You're feeling separate from the person that did that. How can we transmute those feelings of separateness into the connectedness of compassion? And that's almost one whole definition of the spiritual path. Transmuting separateness into connectedness. Because we are connected. In fact, we're more than connected. We're one in consciousness, but can we at least get to the stage of connectedness as we're dying before we die? So is that, that's what it is, that it's what conscious dying is, to be able to consciously feel the connectedness? Well, the, con the connectedness, conscious dying requires at least connectedness. As I was saying before, there are these levels of consciousness, and at the level of compassion, it implies connectedness. But then there's also oneness, which is beyond connectedness, non-duality. There's no one separate to die. Stephen Levine wrote a book entitled, Who Dies? Very good question. Right now, we're sitting in a room, there's videographers and people listening and people talking, male, female, older, younger, bigger, smaller, more hair, less hair. In that dimension, you and I will die. Is there another dimension where there's not separateness? There's, there's even beyond connectedness. There's one consciousness. What quantum physics says and what Tibetan Buddhism says and what happens when you deeply go into meditation and what psychedelic exploration seems to say and what near-death experiences seem to say is all the same thing. That there is a quality of consciousness that does not die, that is untouched by death. I've had so many experiences that lead me to firmly have faith in what I just said. Maybe you don't have faith in that. But to me, the most important thing is finding the most important thing, that that question is a pretty important question. What is it that dies? What is it that doesn't die? One wise person said something like, the most amazing thing in the world is that everyone is going to die, but yet everyone acts as if they were not going to die, as if they were immortal. We live in a society that's fixated on youth and accumulation and doesn't really accept death very fully. That's beginning to change. I have a, a really deep faith in the younger generation. That There are kids. I've got a, a teenage son who is way, way, way more grown up than I was at that age. And his friends and young people are really so much more awake that maybe that will transmute, transform these imbalances that we're talking about. So far, we've been talking about conscious dying in terms of one person dying and supporting that person's uh, death and supporting the family, possibly. But we could also have this whole discussion about the collective. One could even make the point that our society might have a potentially terminal illness here.
blow itself all up or something like that. And that can we work with our collective fear of death? Is there anything more important than that? And there are so many imbalances that there is Amnesty International and Habitat for Humanity and Feed the Homeless and, and all these different organizations, wonderful organizations. But as long as we're collectively afraid of dying, you can put a Band-Aid over here on homelessness and then it pops up over here as uh, there's not enough food. And then you put a Band-Aid over there and it pops up here. The fear pops out there of uh, degrading the environment. So that really, as long as you or I, or collectively all of us, are afraid of dying, society isn't going to settle down enough to really be conscious, to consciously die, if you will. I remember when George Bush the Younger was president, he was somebody whose policies I didn't entirely agree with. And I thought, you know, if you, if you put me in a room with him for three days and I could tell him all the wisdom I know, probably wouldn't change too much. But suppose his daughter were diagnosed with breast cancer, or suppose his wife died. Then maybe he would be open enough, he'd, his heart would be ripped open enough by that grief that the things I could share with him might sink in a bit. And even after 9-11, I thought, oh, maybe collectively now things are going to change. And apparently we weren't ready to change very much, even though there was that shock to the collective system. I think that we'd be more generous, we'd be kinder. We wouldn't be so concerned about getting our own, but we'd be more uh, concerned about our neighbor. That in, in Buddhism, the more compassion you have for others, the happier you are. The, the, the Dalai Lama has this wonderful quote, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but the more we're able to be with our own suffering, to lean into it rather than try to unconsciously get away from it, the happier we're going to be. And if everybody really knew they were going to die, then people would settle down. People would be more able to taste the food they were eating and look into the eyes of the person across the room from them. And care about the person who was trying to get across the crosswalk who was walking so slowly and not be so angry because everybody's dying. If you knew that person were dying or you were sure they were going to die, then how could you be angry at them? How could you be upset with somebody's foibles, if you will? If you know you're dying, then you know there's another, there will be another generation following who need to use the planet. And we're not necessarily doing what we're doing for ourselves. We're not even doing it for our children. We're doing it for our children's children. In America, there's a brand of organic, environmentally sound toilet paper called Seventh Generation. It's like some Native American thing that you're not do we're, we're doing this for seven generations now. We're trying to remember that seven generations in the future, they're, they're going to be people walking this earth, drinking this water, breathing this air, and we have to remember them as well as our own selves. Would you feel terrible if you walked out of the door after this interview and you hadn't completely connected with me? Or would it be different if I were dying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I run a, this thing called the Living Dying Project, and I train volunteers to go into the community to offer free of charge, one-to-one -one support, 
spiritual support to people who have life-threatening illnesses in the Bay Area. And the big secret is a dying person is just a person. It's a person who's living, a person who wants you to be with them. And I'd like you to be with me right now. I'd like everybody who I'm relating to to be with me as if I were a dying person, to have that immediacy, that love. And in the beginning, we have a concept that dying is mysterious and frightening, and if I'm not there with that person every moment, then it would be a horrible thing. When I train people to be caregivers, the, the, the basic message is that caregiving is work on yourself. It's your spiritual practice. It's not, you're not there to help the other person. You're there to awaken. You're there to be with your embarrassment, your fear, your anxiety. And if you're there with those qualities in yourself, you'll be there in the best way possible for the other person. But if you're there to be with the other person and you're not working with this stuff, these emotional issues as they're arising in you, it will prevent you from being there with the other person. It takes maybe a little bit of leap of faith in the beginning that you're not there with a dying person to help them. You're there for you to awaken. And to the extent you're doing that, they're going to awaken. Maybe they don't know it in the moment. Maybe consciously they're not saying, oh my God, look what she's doing. I can do that too. But you're a living invitation. Think of it the other way. Suppose you're with somebody who's dying and you're sitting there saying, I hope I'm saying the right thing. I hope I do this right. The message that person who's dying is getting is she's not even dying and she's having a hard time. How much more difficult is it for me? I'm the one who's sick here, right? Whereas if you're this living model of whatever's arising is open to awareness and compassion. It's workable. I, you can be conscious in this moment, then that person's getting that message. And the reason that the world's contemplative religions say that dying is such a profound spiritual opportunity, an opportunity for awakening, is that one of the main things that keep us caught in this delusion is that we think we're this body, that my body's over here, your body's over there. As we're dying, the bodies are falling away. Big advantage. Personalities falling away. What's left? What is the essential quality that isn't dying? So that if somebody has the kind of horrible advantage of dying kind of slowly of a degenerative disease like ALS or cancer or something, rather than dying just like that from a brain aneurysm or a heart attack or something, then one has the opportunity, at least, particularly with the proper support, to be letting go of these identities and beginning to more identify with that which is essential rather than the identities that one's been grasping throughout one's life. How does it look like when somebody dies? They breathe in, they breathe out, they breathe in, they breathe out, and that's, there's no more breathing in. That's what it looks like. And it feels like, it feels like a miracle. It feels like a, that somebody goes through a doorway. What's on the other side? You have your opinion, I have my opinion maybe, but there's something light-filled, spacious. When you say, what does it feel like when somebody dies? It's a kind of a difficult question because there's, there's two dyings. There's physical death when the brain and the heart, heart stop. That takes about 30 seconds. And there's the spiritual dying process that takes place over a whole number of days before physical death and after physical death. And after physical death, the consciousness of the person who's physically died is almost always hovering around 
the body of the person that's died. And then all of a sudden, just in a moment, consciousness leaves, and the body of the person that died all of a sudden becomes almost irrelevant. It seems to have almost nothing to do with the person who's been alive. It's just this dead piece of stuff. Whereas up until that moment, there was this feeling that was just as alive as when the person was breathing. I have almost never talked to somebody who's been around a lot of deaths who hasn't said exactly that same thing, that there's a very palpable sense of aliveness and consciousness after physical death that hangs around for a while, a number of hours usually, and then all of a sudden is just gone. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.